The Walks Around Britain podcast is sponsored by Travel, the world leader for vehicle-specific dog guards, boot dividers, boot liners, rubber mats and more. Visit travel.co.uk to check out the product range for the car you drive. On the 31st edition of the Walks Around Britain podcast, we discover about the history and about walking on the Channel Island of Jersey. And we go as far west as is possible in England to visit the Isles of Scilly. Hello and you're very welcome to the 31st edition of the Walks Around Burton podcast. I'm Andrew White and I'm your walking guide for the next 30 or so minutes of walking and outdoor chat. Now two podcasts ago we travelled to the Channel Island of Alderney to find out more about its history and what it was like to go walking there. And on this edition, we're on the largest island of the Channel Islands, Jersey. We filmed several walks on Jersey, and possibly the most memorable was one called the Moonwalk. It's in Season 2, Edition 5, and it's an amazing walk, and very unusual too. My guide on that walk, Derek Heron, from Jersey Walk Adventures, tells me more about it. Well, this is a walk uh, out to Seymour Tower, which takes us into the internationally designated Ramsar Wetlands site of the southeast coast of Jersey. It's been designated this because of the huge tidal ranges we have in the area and the remarkable biodiversity we get as a result. The area is quite unusual because there are times when you could be on dry land and then other times if you were there much later you'd be up to 12 meters under the water so it literally is a walk on the seabed. And what makes the area quite unusual is that at one stage this was land 8,000 years ago, we could have walked to France from here. 8,000 years ago, the sea levels rise, it becomes inundated. So it's relatively recent land. A couple of the features that stand out is that when you walk through the area, you'll notice there's quite a lot of clay in the soil. And some of the marine biologists are speculating that part of the reason for the rich biodiversity stems from the fact that the clay acted as a bonding agent to hold the sand and shingle together. When you also look at the rocks, you'll notice that they haven't been rounded by the ocean. They're much more sharp and jagged and barren. And if you go over on an aerial survey or fly in an aircraft, you'll notice that all the way heading over to France is shallow waters. And there's certainly quite a few legends of people saying that they could row their horse and cart to France. Probably not correct. More likely what they were doing was able to get to rocks which were normally completely covered by the ocean and at certain big low tides they may have got their horse and carts there to gather the seaweed. So you can imagine going back into the pub at night, where have you been Henri? Oh I've been so far, I've been to France. <laughs> so tell us about the tower, what, what, yeah. why, why is there a tower out in the middle of the ocean? It all stems back to uh, Jersey's and the British uh, conflicts with France. In 1781 a Baron de Rulcor lands in this area to make an attack on Jersey because Jersey and the Channel Islands were incredibly important strategic assets. You can imagine the Channel Islands and Jersey as floating aircraft carriers. We're only 12 miles from France at the closest point. Anything that is sailing up and down the French coast we could attack and in fact this is exactly what happened. In times of peace we were involved in smuggling and fishing and in times of war we became privateers, licensed pirates who could go out and harass the enemy and any ship we thought were trading with the enemy. So not just French boats. We closed down the English Channel. 
Therefore, we are so important strategically that the French constantly want to attack the island. In fact, there were a number of attacks. The last was in 1781 when de Rulcourt lands here, marches on St. Hallier. Fortunately for us, he gets beaten and defeated. And then all around the island, the round towers are constructed. Seymour Tower, there's a date stone above the wall. 1782, the tower is built. And I like to joke that in 1781 the battle takes place, by 1782 they've done the environmental impact study, they've put it out to planning, they've got a contractor in, out to tender, and they've done all the work and they build it. And it was a, basically an early warning tower because it wasn't designed to stop the enemy, it was designed to give sufficient warning that they could get troops mustered and save perhaps to extra 20 minutes. And there's quite an amusing story that both Seymour Tower and the neighbouring tower, Ico, also a mile offshore. Each of the parishes on the east coast of the island, that's St Clement, St Martin and Grouville, they were billed for the cost of the fuel for the lanterns, which had to be signalled back to shore every hour to prove that the guards and sentries on the tower weren't going to sleep on the job. Because that was one of the problems when they landed here. A lot of the sentries actually were all asleep and didn't hear the uh, French landing. Well, you can stay overnight in the tower. Think of it as a mountain hut or a mountain bothy, except it's perhaps a little bit more uh, upmarket. It's uh, fitted with solar panels on the roof. You've got bunk beds and things like electric fridge. You've got a uh, four-ring gas cooker, oven and grill, cutlery, crockery. Sleep seven, plus guide, because you have to go out with a guide to stay in the tower for safety reasons, because it is a remote location. Uh, you may only be a mile offshore, but when the sea's around you, that's a very long mile to swim back to shore. And even though there's 90,000 or 97,000 plus people on Jersey, you're still a long way away. So if something goes wrong, you need to have some expert advice around. And basically, it's a phenomenal experience. Added to that, at low tide in the night, you come out here, there's a lot of bioluminescence. And there's a particular type of worm and some other creatures which emit light or biochemical reactions at night and literally it's like a walk with the stars at your feet is what we call it when we're taking people out on those walks it's not rocket science yeah the tide's been doing this for years and years you can look at the predictions into the future 10 years ahead but there are some local anomalies and local variations it's a lot of it is down to having a little bit of common sense and awareness and that comes with getting experience. We find, for example, whereas years ago people might have wandered down into this area and they would go down with people who were used to low water fishing, they had that knowledge. The development of freezers and modern technology and big supermarkets, processed food and whatever, that connection has been lost so now suddenly we're left with a place which becomes more frightening because we don't know about it. If people take a little bit of time by going on a guided walk you then learn how to appreciate the area but of course you also learn the benchmarks and how to monitor and the little tricks and tips that keep you safe when you go out there. So we quite often now bump into people who've been on a few of our walks, they're now going out low water fishing, they're going out and exploring our wilderness in a lot more safety simply because what we've done is enabled them to enjoy and experience what is our little bit of wilderness in Jersey. You don't need to go very far down a beach with children to have an amazing experience. When we go out just even 100 meters down, there's a rock pool area. If you start looking in those rocks, you will find tons and tons of mini beasts. You don't need to go far with children in order to whet their appetite, to get them thinking about the sort of world that there is literally under a rock. Um, there's no need to go and do a one mile walk 
we quite often get children who start out, I'm going to be bored, they say, I'm going to be bored, I'm not interested. Well, by the end of it, they're usually struggling not to be excited and fascinated because this is the world of mini beasts and creatures. It isn't the Disney Channel, it's not National Geographic. You know, some of these creatures eat other creatures. Some of them are pretty vicious to each other. Fortunately, not to us. You know, there's sea anemones out there. If you touch them, you can feel the Velcro. Nature invents Velcro way before we do. And, and this is the sort of excitement and fun environment we can get. And if we can pass that over to our children, they're going to learn to appreciate this world far more. The island of Jersey has a fascinating history. And my guide for the walk in season five, Hugh Gill, told me more about this wonderful heritage. We have evidence here that man was around on Jersey before it became an island, 200,000 years ago. And then the island became an island around about 8,000 years ago. A Neolithic man, the farmers, original farmers first came here. And so as time went on, we've got evidence of Bronze Age man being here. And then a tribe escaping the Romans came and lived here and they built camps. So that's why the Romans didn't come very often, actually. And then as the centuries have passed, we've been involved one way or another with just about everything that's gone on. The Normans came in the middle of the 10th century. And then subsequently, um, when King John lost Normandy, he kept uh, the, the Channel Islands generally in order to keep an eye on the French. But he had to do that by devious means. This was in 1204. One of the ways was to ensure that the sons of the local barons were kept where an eye could be kept on them, i.e. locked up and, and the key retained until their fathers decided that they would remain loyal to John rather than um, to the French king. But at the same time, which is quite incredible when you think of it, that 800 years ago, King John gave this island privileges which still remain today, which is why we are an almost independent state. We have our own government. He said we could have our own government. We could raise our own taxes. We could have our own laws. And that still applies today, although the actual laws, new ones, can't be put into place until the Queen has approved them through the Privy Council. Nevertheless, we devise them in our own interests in many ways. And there's no compulsory military service. We could have our own religion. And so things have moved on. The island has been the centre of, uh, put it politely, privateering, impolitely, piracy. I'm not suggesting that we have pirates here today. No, on the contrary. We have a finance industry, but then that's a different way of looking at things, isn't it? The uh, merchants whose ships were used by the kings, who hadn't got enough ships for their own fleet, they were a, a bunch of brave young men who would go out to the other side of the Atlantic, believe it or not. We're talking of the 1500s onwards, to catch cod. They caught the cod in huge, huge quantities, dried it, salted it, cured it generally, and took it down to the Catholic countries of the Mediterranean and Central America. And then from there they would bring back, well, gold if they could get it, but they'd bring back things they could trade with France and with England, and that would be wine and brandy. You know Martel? Martel Brandy yeah. Company? Their house was in the parish of St. Bellard in Jersey. Jean Martel went off in the 18th century and bought a few vineyards down in Cognac and uh, it still, still exists today. Incredible. The goods they brought back would then be sold quite openly to the French smugglers and the English smugglers. It was open because it was, after all, a free port. 
we had no responsibility for any duties that the English or the French wished to levy on alcoholic products or tobacco. It was nothing to do with us. You know, if people want to come and buy it and smuggle it, that was their problem. And that's what happened. Occasionally, they would send inspectors and the trade would move to the offshore reefs or up to the north coast uh, bays where then stories would be invented of dogs with huge teeth and eyes as big as, as saucers and, and ghostly women who'd come out of the hedge as you walk down the hill. Things like this, to, just to ward people off. But generally speaking, it was a, an open business. Then they had ships big enough. They had crews willing to earn the money that was in privateering, so they would go off. Tell me about walking in Jersey. Oh, it's a fabulous place for walking and cycling, actually. And you, we, we've seen today, the walk we had today was a lovely walk through the green lanes, which are actually part of a marked cycle route. But the, the walk, a couple of miles, two and a half miles, uh, starting at a 6,000-year-old dolmen built by Stone Age man. Fantastic place. Through the lovely lanes with the archways created by something that goes on here twice a year by law, where people who own the land on either side of the lane have to cut back the sides of the lane and then clear it all away. And the overhanging branches to a height of 12 feet above the road and 8 feet above the pavement it's called broncage, but it keeps the lanes really tidy and creates this kind of archway effect that you, that you get. And then we came out at the top of the hill at the end of the walk to look at this fabulous castle here, built in the 13th century with additions, naturally, as it became more and more vulnerable to cannon fire, finally uh, deserted at the end of the 16th century. But this castle looks across to the nearby French coast, 15 miles away. It, the walls were painted white, just to tell the French, you know, this we've got a massive great structure here. Don't you bother to try and come and take this island, you know. It was occupied by the Normans once and, of course, during the Second World War, but generally it's been there to defend the island against uh, attacks from, from uh, the outside. And uh, a jolly good job it's done too. But walking all round, uh, not just a little walk through the country lanes, visiting that kind of, uh, of site, but also wonderful walks along the north coast where there's a track well you can almost walk around the whole island um, hardly being on a road at all if you if you get the timing right with the with the tide you can walk across the beach uh, where um, otherwise you'd have to walk might have to walk on the road um, but the north coast paths uh, are terrific every turn uh, that you make every corner you come to every angle is a different view a different aspect an old quarry here, a fern-covered hillside, and then later on in the year you have the, the heather coming out, beautiful purple, mixed with the yellow gorse, you know, the gorse in the, in the spring, and then, which is the, the, the earliest gorse, beautiful yellow, and then you, and you have the broom coming and this lovely aroma, and then later in the year you have a thing called Western Gorse, which is, grows low down, and in particular out on the northwest point of the island. There it blends, mixes with the heather, and you have this carpet of fantastic colour uh, all laid out on the Leyland, it's called. It's just a wonderful place to walk. I've been here 36 years, and I've not yet got tired of walking around. And showing, as a guide, as a blue badge guide, I really get great pleasure in showing the island to our visitors 
and then you can't really not like it. You can't really not enjoy it. We have fabulous weather today. We have about 3,000 hours of sunshine every year anyway, and about 850 milliliters of rain. That means that we have enough rain to keep the place green, but enough sun to make it nice and warm. I have a, a series of parish walks which take in all aspects of each of the 12 parishes, talking about you know, how many people live there, how the parish system works, with the constable and the honorary police, and the, and the, the, the way uh, for centuries now uh, the administration of the island has been run on a very much a parochial basis and picking out the best aspects of each particular parish. Even the town uh, where the parish of St. Helier, I do a walk around there, but not around the main sites of the town, around the back streets where the Irish used to live in the 18th and early 19th century, how so many of them died of cholera and how a lot of these little streets have now been turned into little bijou houses. Really very, very charming. And then we walk out to the back of, suddenly you're out of the back of town and you're in the countryside. People, parts of, the, of, uh, of town, people think, oh, it's a town, you don't want to go there just for shopping. But uh, you know, there are parts of even St. Helier that are really, really attractive. That's what my aspect of things. And then uh, one of my colleague guides takes people out to the uh, tide permitting, out to the lighthouse in the southwest, the most southerly lighthouse in the British Isles. The green lanes have been going here, well, there must be 12 or 13 years now, I think. One of the parishes, people were using the narrow lanes to avoid the traffic in the mornings and the evenings. And the idea was to reduce the speed on these lanes so that to encourage people not to use them. The government, the states of Jersey, as it's known, they didn't really want to put another speed limit into the law, but they allowed them to try it out for a year, and it worked, it was very successful. So then they allowed each parish to decide whether or not they wanted to adopt the green lane scheme or and which lanes that they would use because the, the little lanes you see are looked after by the parishes the main roads are looked after by the central government department ten of the parishes have uh, have adopted the scheme and it works very well the speed limits 15 miles an hour what people say is it gives priority to walkers the rule of, of the road still applies but the cars can't go faster than 15 miles an hour so the end effect is that you do get some priority Thanks very much, thank you. My pleasure. You can find all the walks we've done on Jersey by visiting our website, walksaroundbritain.co.uk and you can see the walks on our television series which you can find on TV channels in Britain and around the world, on Amazon Prime Video and of course on our own subscription website, Walks Around Britain Plus. When I was researching for this edition of the podcast, I was very sad to discover that Hugh passed away in May of this year. In the very short time that I had with him on one day, I knew him to be a charming, caring and knowledgeable person with a deep passion for Jersey. I know he'll be greatly missed. The Walks Around Britain podcast is brought to you by Travel, the world-leading manufacturer and retailer of vehicle-specific dog guards, boot dividers, boot liners, rubber mats and more. Adding travel products enables you to get out and enjoy walking adventures with friends, family and dogs so that everybody enjoys the journey. Travel offers the best fit guarantee of any brand when purchasing direct through their website or your money back. Visit travel.co.uk to see the product range available for the car you drive.
Many people make the mistake in thinking Land's End is the furthest west point of England. It might well be the furthest west point of mainland England, but the furthest west point of the whole of England is actually a place called Crim Rocks, a part of the Isles of Scilly. The islands were a place I'd always wanted to visit, and I finally got the opportunity to go a few years ago to film Two Walks, the TV series. Being some 25 miles off the Cornish coast, the way to get to them is either by boat or via the air, in my case, from Newquay Airport. On landing, you notice that the pace of life is somewhat different, more relaxed, more in touch with nature. Artist Vicky Heaney told me more about the islands. They're a fantastic place, really. My background is, is zoology and arts, and I find that you know, you've got so much inspiration for artwork here. Beautiful places, all the boat trips, wildlife, fantastic seabird life here, which is a, a particular interest of mine. Yeah, I just love living here. Where do you live? Do you live on St Mary's? I live on the biggest island, St Mary's, yeah. yes. And tell me about, a little bit about the other islands as well. So the population as a whole for the islands is about uh, just over 2,000. And St Mary's is the biggest, about 1,500, 600, something like that. And then there's four off-islands that are inhabited, and each of those have got roughly 100 people each. Um, what kind of a community is it? It's nothing like really anywhere else, is it? It tends to be a very close-knit community because we can be cut off, you know, in bad weather. Certainly with the storms, you know, we didn't have boats for a couple of days. You start to sort of see less fruit and veg, <laughs> fresh fruit and veg in the, in the co-op. But um, at the same time, the community pulls together and we, we see it through and then, you know, it's, it's all back, back with a vengeance for the summer, really. So islands, in my experience, tend to be very creative places. Is that the same here? I think so. I mean, I always think the Isles of Scilly is, is as far west as you can get, certainly on the, t- on the tip of England, and uh, people tend to keep travelling west until they can't get any further, and then, then they find they're inspired here and then settle down. We, and we have a really thriving arts and crafts community here. I've seen lots of little studios and that on my tours as well, so there's a, a good base there to get involved with. There is, and there's quite, you know, you can have a nice little walk where you take in a lot of studios around the islands. Uh, St Mary's in particular, you've got a lot of different places, sort of spaced out so that you've got a nice walk and then maybe a nice cafe for lunch on the way. Um, and then the off-islands, again, they've, they've got quite a lot of arts and crafts to have a look at, so you could make a real theme of it, definitely. So what kind of wildlife do you see on the island, then? We're very special for seabirds here. We have some of the, the largest number of breeding seabirds uh, for the southwest. Um, it's the only place for storm petrels in England and only one of only two places for Manx shearwaters. So we also have puffins, which people love. So if you go on the boat trips during the summer, you've got a good chance of seeing some puffins or maybe some, an evening trip to see the shearwaters. I wanted to find out more about the nature on the islands, so I tracked down another expert. My name is Rebecca Theroles and I work for the Isles of Scilly Area of Outstanding Natural Beauty Partnership. The Isles of Scilly are made up of five inhabited islands um, and lots of islands which aren't inhabited and they're designated as an Area of Outstanding Natural Beauty which is a designation for the islands because of their special qualities, basically and um, unique natural beauty. Now lots of people don't understand what the designation means? Um, well, it protects the islands, essentially, so it's, it's to conserve and enhance the island's special qualities, um, particularly with regards to planning, basically. They, they're akin um, in legislation to national parks. So 
When you come to the islands, what sort of wildlife can you see? Um, there's so much wildlife here to see and, and explore for yourselves. There's um, the grey Atlantic seals, there's colonies of those um, on the eastern isles and out into the western isles, um, so you can see those while you're here. There's lots of species of plants and lichens and ferns and bees and some mammals that don't occur anywhere else in the British Isles and are endemic to the Isles of Scilly. So there's quite a lot of real rarities here, really. I've seen talk of species which are slightly different as well in their appearance. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, there's a red barbed ant, for example, that lives on St Martin's, um, and that's completely um, unique to the Isles of Scilly. So, yeah. What kind of plant life are we looking at here as well? Um, plant life, there's lots of coastal species. Um, heathland here as well is um, there's lots of heathland species which are obviously specialists. Um, so there's quite a lot of those to see. Um, June's a great time to visit the islands because of the thrift that grows here. That's the kind of like pinky, purpley um, plant that you see on the coastal edges. That's beautiful um, in June times. So that's a great time to visit. And what kind of differences are there in the wildlife between the five islands? There's not much difference between them all. There's quite a similar mixture of species, really. Um, But each island is different in its own right and and has a different feel about it. But the landscape in itself and the wildlife that's there is quite similar, really. But, yeah, it's all there to explore. And they're not flat, are they, these islands? No, well, compared to some areas, they're quite flat. But St Mary's, for example, is quite undulating. Um, Briar itself has got quite a few uh, hills to climb up um, and fantastic views to see from up there. I think it's the uh, south end of Briar, big hills there, and you can you can look pretty much all across uh, the islands. And you really get a sense of well as well of how silly was a long time ago where before the sea levels rose because the islands of course were interconnected so you get a real sense a sense there of, of how that would have looked. And what about the islands that aren't inhabited? Are you able to see those? You have to get permission from the Isles of City Wildlife Trust who manage uh, almost 60% of the island's landmass. A lot of the uninhabited islands are protected for their seabirds uh, and seal colonies, so uh, especially during the summer months, disturbance of those sites is not really permitted um, because of the fragile nature of the seabirds. But you can certainly view them from a lot of the other islands, and a lot of seabirds are on the inhabited islands, which are more than welcome to go on. So, for example, on St Agnes, there's Kittywake colonies, hopefully Manchester water colonies, um, St Martins as well, there's Fulmer and all those sorts of things. So you can, you can see those from those islands. And I've noticed a lot of species are slightly different to their cousins on the mainland. Well, there is always that. It's the isolation of islands. You know, you've got that bit of that stretch of... It's just 30 miles of water, but it makes a lot of difference. I mean, going back to birds as, as my, my favourite thing, there's some sort of really common birds that we just don't get here. We don't really have magpies, and there's, in fact, there's never been an uptatch on the Isles of Scilly. You know, there's, there's sort of really quirky things like that, and then we've got the white-toothed shrew, uh, which is a speciality for Scilly. We've got our own subspecies of, of bee, a kind of... Uh, it's a fluffy bee, a moscada bee, but it's the Scilly bee. We've got quite a lot of special plant life, dwarf pansy and there's a fern as well there's a few things that really you only find here on Scilly because you've got that isolation and it's that temperate climate as well isn't it you know I mean it's a bit windy today but it's been very warm at the same time Absolutely. One of the things that the islands are famed for is, is their subtropical gardens on Tresco, where you've got plants from around the world that, that survive here. One of the things that you see is on New Year's Day they do a flower count. 
and they get regularly over 100 species in flower on New Year's Day. So it, we, we, I mean, we are only 30 miles from Penzance, but because of that, the water around us, we don't really get the frosts. So mm. that, that really does mean that things can survive here that wouldn't necessarily make it on the mainland. And that water is just such a lovely shade of blue, isn't it? It really is. It's probably still a bit chilly right now, but, but yes, no, we get a, a lot of people go swimming in it too. And, and, you know, there's all the boating. We've got the sailing school, kite surfing, things like that. There's a lot of things that are involved with the water here, obviously. A big water-themed area. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> and when you've finished exploring St Mary's, you could go on one of the little boats to visit one of the off-islands. And at the moment, I'm off to Tresco. And I'm keen to visit the famous Tresco Abbey Gardens. Garden curator Mike Nelms took me for a tour around. Tell me about where we are. Well, we're right in the middle of the Tresco Abbey Gardens, which is a, a sort of private but a botanic garden that's on the island of Tresco. It was started by um, a man called Augustus Smith in 1834, and since then, five members of the family have taken on the garden up, right up to the present day, and, and the garden has always been maintained and looked after by the family. But it's unique in Britain. There's nothing like it in British gardening because we grow all our plants from around the world but strictly or mostly the Mediterranean climate zones, places like South Africa, Australia, California, Chile, the Canary Islands, Mexico, um, a lot of plants from New Zealand. Whereas most plants in Britain from those areas wouldn't grow very well, we can grow them all the year round because we simply don't get very cold in the winter. So tell me about the sort of climate here then, why, why is it so different? We've got the Gulf Stream that comes wandering by we're also 30 miles out into the ocean and because we're so far out into the sea cold weather can't linger very easily it's not often very still so frost doesn't really form we've got no high ground so we don't get a lot of clouds which also bring in sort of severe weather so usually the weather just flies over the top of us <laughs> just that we don't get cold in the winter so tell me about some of the plants that you can only see here then in the British Isles well if we move about five foot away and look back up there you'll see palm trees that are probably 50 or 60 foot high that come from the Canary Islands, these particular trees but yeah, you simply wouldn't grow them to that size anywhere, in, anywhere else in Britain so you have palm trees. We have a lot of South African plants called proteas which are relatively tender again for the British Isles one or two coastal areas can grow them but we can grow them very easily here um, we have a lot of succulent plants, plants that are mostly water anyway, but if they had any cold weather at all, they'd die. Well, here they flourish. Um, so that's quite nice to see that sort of thing. They're not cactus, but they're very similar. They're sort of cactus without the spikes, if you like. <laughs> and the other thing, of course, is that the plants will flower all the year round here because they'll flower at the same time with us as they would in their native countries. So, for instance, a lot of the South African and Australian plants will flower with us in... November, December, January and February when it's their spring and early summer. And you sort of think that there shouldn't be that much of a difference just being 30 miles out from the sea, should you? Well, there isn't a huge difference. Uh, if you go to the sort of southwest peninsula of Cornwall, um, in fact, all over Cornwall, there are some fabulous gardens. I think Cornwall's probably the, the best garden county in, in Britain. But a lot of those gardens can grow 
some of the plants that we can grow here. It's yeah. just what we have is that consistency over the years because, you know, every five or ten years, Cornwall will get hit by some weather, whereas we perhaps, perhaps won't. What we do have, of course, though, are huge, severe gales. And we've had, <laughs> we've had a whole winter this year of gales. And when you're on one of your walks, you'll see trees that look like they've been hit with a flamethrower. They'll be bright orange, and that's simply salt spray and the sheer force of the wind that's turned them from green to orange. It's literally wow. burnt them as they've stood. And part of the, the attraction of coming here is, is a boat trip over, making mm. it very special, isn't it? Oh, yeah. One of the nice things is you come to the Isles of Scilly, uh, most people stay on the main island, um, and then each day they'll saunter down to the quay, and boats go out to every island and off to little excursions, off to see lighthouses and rocks and seabirds and things. And um, so every day there's a nice sort of bustle on St Mary's as all the boats go out to the other islands. And indeed from Tresco, there's a, a boat will go from each island to other islands, not just the main island. And so we have a couple of boats that will move about and take you to other places as well. So whichever island you're on, you'll get to see all the other islands as well. If you're inspired to go to the Isles of Scilly, you can find the walks we've done on the Walks Around Britain television series. You'll find the walking routes on our website, walksaroundbritain.co.uk, and full editions of the television series on Amazon Prime, on demand on Planet Knowledge, on Freeview, and of course, on Walks Around Britain Plus. Which is a little bit like Netflix, but just for walking. You can get a seven-day free trial and 50% off the subscription for you or as a gift by visiting our website. That's it for another podcast. If you'd like to suggest a topic or would like to comment on anything on the podcast, then you can do that by emailing us, podcast at walksaroundbutton.co.uk. Don't forget to follow us on social media if you don't already. You'll find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and a load of other places too. Until next time, thanks for listening, and happy walking. The Walks Around Britain podcast is sponsored by Travel, the world leader for vehicle-specific dog guards, boot dividers, boot liners, rubber mats and more. Visit travel.co.uk to check out the product range for the car you drive.